I'm Jill Barber, and I'm a women's health nurse practitioner. I'm Ben Hames. I lead workforce development in the state of Georgia. Because I do work with women and women of all ages, you get a lot of different you know, medical needs that do present themselves. And many of those needs are, are needs that also have a lot of spiritual issues along with it too. Women that are struggling with infertility, women that are struggling with loss. Um, and, and those are ways that, that not only do their physical needs need to be met, but you can also meet their emotional needs. I anchor our work in Genesis 2, uh, where God puts man in the garden and in that original and first state says, tend the garden and keep it in order. And uh, that speaks to the human DNA. You know, one time I had a lady who came in for a physical and she, she walked in and she said, I've been waiting all year long for this appointment. And I thought, oh, great. Well, she must have a lot of, you know, concerns. And I said, what, what can I help you with today? And she said, it's fasting. I want to know more about fasting. I'm struggling that area of my life. And, and I thought, wow, that's not what I thought we were going to talk about today. When you actually divorce individuals from work, uh, you see all sorts of negative fallout from that. Uh, depression and drug use and abuse and broken families. And where there is a job, you have individuals who are engaged in a positive way in their family and in the community. Uh, student achievement is higher uh, for those individuals uh, who have jobs versus those who don't. All other things uh, be equal. And so when you're faced with challenges like an unwanted pregnancy, you know, as a believer, I have to you know, confront that and I have to talk about the, the impact that that can have on her life. And at times I know that when I share the gospel with her that I'm touching on an area that's going to be painful and it's going to be hurtful and, and she's going to struggle with that area. Um, I might lose a patient um, because I'm telling her something that's, that's conf you know, confronting her. Um, and I probably have lost a patient before for doing that. But I think I've gained far more other patients and I've gained patients' trust. And while there may be challenges, it, the rewards are far greater exceeding those. Well, you know, as I think back to the courses that I took with Dr. Williams and biblical counseling, it's been so helpful for me uh, to have that exposure uh, to how we apply the Bible to everyday living and what this means for managing a team and seeking to motivate people and dealing with problems. Classes at school um, that have helped me probably the most uh, to share with women are my ones that have helped me grow more in my biblical knowledge. So ethics, you know, has challenged me to make sure that everything I do is, is not just, you know, appropriate for a patient medically, but that there's also a sound moral judgment behind it, that, that I'm not prescribing anything that's going to go against God's principles in their lives. So the beauty of my job is that I can not only just meet people's physical needs, but I can also meet their emotional and their spiritual needs also, which gives a bigger picture of how to treat a woman. So Ben and Jill uh, don't have a mission. God's mission has Ben and Jill. And that's what I want to talk about today for just a few minutes as we talk about joining Jesus on his mission and how we might do that very thing. I want to share with you in a presentation, a brief presentation, and happy to do so in a partnership here with Southeastern Seminary. Matter of fact, I developed this presentation with Keith Whitfield, who is one of the faculty at Southeastern Seminary. So let's look together uh, at God's mission. Let's look together at what it means to be on mission with Jesus. And we'll start with John chapter 20 and verse 21 as a theme verse. I think we're having a little technical difficulty, so give me one second. Now we're back on business, okay. So in John 20, 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. He says that to his disciples gathered in a room, and in doing so, he spoke to all of his disciples, which reminds us that the mission of God is not something that's engaged in by a subset of God's people, but something that's engaged in and owned by or owns all of God's people. Uh, and so when we talk th throughout the theme, and we hear it over and over again, I am going, that's not just for people who are passing across 
crossing geographic boundaries, though it's certainly for them as well. This is a theological identification rather than a geographic location. And because it's a theological identification of who we are, we'll also be challenged to greater geographic engagement. But all of God's people are sent on mission. The only question is where, among whom, and doing what. Our call is to put our yes on the table and let God put it on the map. And so how do we express that in a brief few minutes when we talk about the mission of God? Well, since our time is brief, I want to do it in one slide to kind of express it and explain it, if you will. We'll build it around two big themes of God and God's glory. That's our desire is to be obedient to him. And we have to recognize first and foremost that God is the source of the mission. Mission is rooted in the identity of God himself. This is key. So your church doesn't have a search for a mission. My church doesn't have search for a mission. It's not that the church has a mission. It's that God's mission has a church. And so we recognize that God himself is a missionary God. He wants to be glorified. He's on a mission. What's that mission? Well, it's to be glorified by making himself known. He's evidenced that in creation, right? We saw that, that he is on a mission. He, he, he creates, well, creation, and then out of his creation, men and women who might give glory to him. And so God's mission started and becomes more evident in creation. Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. But we know that creation and his create, those he created did not worship him as they should. They didn't give him his due glory. And Part of that's because of the result of a theological event and an historic occurrence that we call the fall. And because of the fall, the world was both broken and lost. Those are two key words. The, the world is broken and lost. The fall has stained creation and broken creation. This wasn't a surprise to the sovereign God of all the universe. So because of his great love for us, because of his great concern for us, he sends the Son. So God sends the Son into the world. God sends the Spirit into the world. God, 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 because he's on a mission, because he is a sender by his very identity. Well, God, he's the source of the mission. The impulse is rooted in the nature of God himself. He sends the Son, and this mission has a rule, and this rule is called the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is breaking into the world, the reign of God being made evident in the world. So God sends his son to establish the kingdom. So the kingdom is real. The kingdom is present. It's a spiritual kingdom, but Jesus speaks of it in Mark 1.15, and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So the kingdom comes, and in a world that's broken and lost in rebellion to the rightful reign of a good, holy, sovereign, and perfect God, the kingdom breaks into the world in a subversive way. It's a subversive kingdom, subverting the values of the world, instead lifting up the values of a king, his people, and a way of life. So Jesus comes and he's sent and he establishes his kingdom. How? Well, he establishes his kingdom by by, by saving a people for himself. Jesus comes saving. He defeats sin and death. In Romans 8, 3, it says what the law could not do, because since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He he condemned, he, he defeated, if you will, sin in the flesh by sending his son, by sending the son in the flesh as a as a sin offering. He redeems a people through the forgiveness of sins. We're not the first people to discover and talk about the kingdom of God. People came before us and 
our theological and sometimes our forefathers and mothers who came before us spoke about the kingdom of God and some of them went astray by that conversation, particularly at the beginning of the last century. In the kingdom of God movement where we would see the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, people would say, and, and, and good deeds done in the name of Christ to, to make the kingdom of God more evident on earth was, well, eventually would sidetrack the proclamation of the gospel itself. So how do we avoid making the errors of those who came before us? History doesn't always repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. So how do we avoid the errors of those that have gone before us? We have to remember that you can't get to the kingdom without going through the cross. And when we recognize that a bloody cross and an empty tomb is central to the message that we proclaim, is the, is the joy of the cross, is the, is the joy that we have of proclaiming Jesus' death on the cross for our sin and in our place, then ultimately we stay rooted in a gospel and a kingdom message that is built around the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus. So Jesus came serving, but he also came ser- uh, Jesus came saving, but he also came serving. Jesus came saving the lost. Luke nineteen ten, he says, "I came to seek and save the lost." And in Luke four verses eighteen and nineteen, he he announces and inaugurates his public ministry, kind of hearkening back to a reference in Isaiah. We don't have time to fully unpack, but he says, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me." And and then he begins to talk about the captive and the blind and the marginalized. And James would later write, "The true religion is ministering to widows and to orphans." And so Jesus comes saving the lost. Jesus came serving the hurting. If the King is sender and sent, and He is, we join Jesus on his mission of seeing the lost saved because the world's lost, of seeing the broken served because the world is broken. Sometimes people want to confuse those things. There's popular phrases that go around on Facebook today. Maybe you've seen it. It says, uh, preach the gospel at all times when, when necessary, use words. It's attributed to Francis of Assisi. And people post it on Facebook all the time. There's only two, only two problems with it. Number one, he, he never said it, so there's that. Uh, Remember the words of Abraham Lincoln, don't believe all the things you see attributed to me on the internet. But number two, it's really bad theology. It's like saying feed the hungry at all times when necessary use food. The gospel in and of itself needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be announced as the good news that it is. So Jesus comes, he establishes his kingdom by saving and serving, but then the church is birthed in the wake of the kingdom of God. The church partners with Jesus in his kingdom mission. Now by now you've noticed that I violated just about every PowerPoint rule known to man. And it gets worse before it gets better. But because they gave me a little amount of time and they gave me a little amount of space, I had to do both. I'm talking faster than Danny Aiken, which is hard to do. So number three, the church is birthed in the wake of the kingdom of God. It joins Jesus in his mission of saving by proclaiming the gospel in gospel proclamation. It joins Jesus in his mission of serving by demonstrating and living out the implications of the gospel, right? Gospel proclamation, making disciples, gospel demonstration, love, so they may see your good deeds and glorify God, Second, uh, 1 Peter 2.12. But this is a Trinitarian mission, so God sends his spirit. God sends his spirit who comes and empowers the church. He, he empowers the church to be on mission with Jesus. He, he gathers the church and the importance of those biblical practices, those marks of a church in a gathered church. But that's not all he does. He, he scatters a church. So a, a church full of people could hold up signs saying, I am going. I'm going to my workplace. I'm going to my neighborhood. I'm going to Botswana. I'm going to London. 
So he scatters the church. And ultimately, so an empowered church is a church that's living on mission, the kingdom mission. It's about the work of the kingdom of God. And that empowered church is filled with people who are living on mission here, living out the everyday mission of God where they are, and then sending people around the globe so the name and fame of Jesus would be more widely known. So the church is doing and about the mission in the world. The context, is the world is the context in which the mission occurs. And if we recall, the world is is lost and broken, so Jesus comes saving and serving. We join him in his work through the love of Jesus, sharing it with the lost and showing it to the broken. As a matter of fact, showing and sharing the love of Jesus is key. So the church is sent into the world, but now we see movement across the screen. The church is sent into the world. It joins Jesus' mission. John 20, 21 again. It's a sign and an instrument of the kingdom of God. It's a sign in that it's a, it's a picture of what the kingdom looks like when men and women are changed by the power of gospel, of the gospel. Races are reconciled. The hurting are served. Marriages are made whole. The, the, all around us, the miraculous is seen and evident. Why? Because the church is a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, and it is an instrument of that kingdom being about the work of Jesus in the midst of a broken and a lost world. It says promises that it's, it's to be an ambassador. Paul referring to himself, but applicable to us, says, says that we're an ambassador for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. One of the great challenges of our day and our denomination is we have a denomination that loves evangelism as long as somebody else is doing it. And we have to recognize that we're all called to be ambassadors, to represent Jesus and his kingdom. The keys to the kingdom we have through the proclamation of the gospel that men and women might hear and respond and repent. And no gates can hold back the advance of the gospel in the kingdom. Jesus promises clear. He says, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. So where do we end this mission with God's glory? Well, we ultimately see God's glorified. He's glorified now among his people. He's glorified now in his church. We want God to be glorified in a church that's redeemed for God's glory. So when we gather together or we scatter on mission, we glorify God so that his name and fame would be more widely known. Ephesians chapter one says he he predestined us to be adopted uh, through Jesus Christ for himself to the praise, to the praise of his glorious grace so he might be glorified. Ephesians 2.20, we are his creation created in Christ Jesus for good works. He created us to glorify him and one day mission will be completed for God's glory. Now, I recognize some of you now, it's like, well, how, Ed? I mean, give us, give us an eschatological pathway to the future. And I, I know in this room there are people who are premillennial and people who are amillennial and people who are just confused about millennials. Um, so I'm a, I'm a premillennial, like, um, but like Jesus and all the apostles. Um, <laughs> And so, so, so my, my picture of how we might get there might be a little different than you if you hold a different view. But here's what I know. Jesus is going to come back. He's going he's to restore all things ultimately for his glory. All things to be restored for his glory. The, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and King. I, I don't know all the details. I'm not sure I can say with certainty how. And I certainly can't say when. But I can say until he comes, I am going on mission for him. So I'm joining Jesus. We're joining Jesus on his mission. And so ultimately, uh, the mission is completed for God's glory. My clicker stopped working, so if you go and click on to the next thing, ultimately all things are restored for God's glory. So the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our God and King, and the world is ultimately 
restored. We spent a lot of time talking about the church and the world. Let's click that next slide. In the church and the world, what we see is that there's a distinction. We can spend a lot of time, and it's a good thing to learn about how effectively engage our culture, how to be on mission. But my exhortation to us today is to spend more time up in the upper left-hand corner where God, we are reminded, let's click one more time, where God is the source of the mission. Mission is rooted in the identity of God himself. So I'm blessed every time I see somebody with a sign says, I am going. I'm blessed when they say to the Ebon in Malaysia, to the Quechua in the highlands of Peru, to the Pokot in Africa. But I'm also blessed when all of God's people acknowledge that they're owned by God's mission and all of God's people say, I am going. Thanks for the opportunity to share with you. My name is J.D. Greer, and I'm the pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. My name is William Deuce Branch, and I'm grinding as a Ph.D. student. I'm Scott Hildreth, the director of the Center for Great Commission Studies at Southeastern Seminary. So kingdom diversity in the scriptures begins in the book of Genesis when God created Adam and Eve. You see, the Bible teaches there's only one race. With that, he intended mixture and variety and diversity as part of the world that he made. It says he made every kind of animal, made every kind of tree. And then when we get with mankind, we see every kind of, of, of human. And so it then was for this one human race that Jesus came and died on the cross. And the death of Jesus provides an opportunity for the salvation of the human race, which is the establishment of the kingdom of God. And that reconciliation is a sign, a demonstration of the power of the gospel when people come together, uh, really, who have um, historically been enemies, united with one common problem, sin, one common savior, Jesus, one common hope, the resurrection, one humanity, and that is the new humanity in Christ. Uh, this really has been my journey. My journey has always been to intentionally forego my own desire to be in the majority, uh, forego my own preference to sort of like it my way and to co-labor uh, to see that experience, that diversity. As a church, we're not trying to host multicultural events. We're trying to live multicultural lives so that um, what happens on the weekend when we gather for worship is not just a, a display of the united colors of Benetton. It is um, really the result of family relationships that exist all throughout the week. We're able to mobilize through our campus people from all over the world, our, our Anglo-American students, our African-American students, Asian students, our Hispanic students, for the sake of reaching the nations. And so we're trying on the campus to develop a, a diverse campus in order to reach a diverse world. Kingdom diversification is difficult. Um, it, it sounds a lot better as a theory than it does when, when you're actually trying to um, form a, a unity of, of cultures under this the banner of Christ. Um, there is uh, th There are preferences that's uh, you end up having to give up. Uh, there are misunderstandings. I know for me, uh, beyond what's inside of me, there's also been the challenges of going places where one is enough. <laughs> if we have one or two of you, we've got enough. We've reached diversity. <laughs> that can be frustrating uh, because you're not just looking for a, you know, what we say, the token. You're not just looking for a couple of you. You're actually looking for there to be an environment that will allow that to spread. One of the main struggles that I think that we're going to face uh, over the coming months and, and years is the idea that many of the people 
people that we're reaching on our campus and are becoming our students are actually coming from backgrounds that don't have an emphasis in fulfilling the Great Commission as part of their church. They may be coming from church backgrounds who historically have received missions rather than being missionary senders. And so these students don't have the network, they don't have the resources or the vision uh, for being missionary and for doing the missionary task. Southeastern has actually done a wonderful job in even equipping me. They demonstrated a loving desire for kingdom diversity even by the way they uh, invited, recruited me to come to the school, extended themselves to me and my family. And ever since we got here, uh, we realized that the word is being matched by the actions. Part of what we're doing uh, through the seminary is is working to see uh, the church around the world strengthened for the sake of the gospel. That's This is kingdom diversity. I just got back from a trip in Uganda. We were working with South Sudanese pastors, the, the newest Baptist convention in the world. And one of their great questions was, what does it mean to be a Baptist? And they, had, they knew that Baptists believed the Bible. They knew a little bit about what it meant to be Baptist. And so they were really pressing us, how do, how do we know that we're Baptists? How do we start Baptist churches? And so we came up with this little, uh, this little chant or, or this little symbol uh, to help them understand the four key beliefs of Baptists. And Southeastern taught me to, to love the gospel more than anything. They taught me the gospel was more important than my personal preferences. They taught me that the gospel was the center of the church. Uh, and maybe just as importantly, they taught me that humility as I walked through ministry and the ability to listen, the, the, uh, the idea that I, I wasn't going to graduate from seminary with knowing everything there was to know, that I was to be a lifelong learner that was humbled by the gospel and open to what the Spirit of God was saying to the church. That one thing probably has equipped me more to, to deal with and to lead in kingdom diversity than, than probably anything that I've uh, learned in my life. And Southeastern Seminary is, is working toward kingdom diversity, both on our campus to raise up students and to, to develop a campus that looks more like heaven, a, a campus that reflects what God's intention is for the nations uh, to be seen worshiping. But we also are reaching out from our campus to, do, to see, to help develop a diverse kingdom of God, worshiping, praising the Lord in all languages around the world in many different areas and many different locations. Good afternoon. Uh, Y'all can't talk back to a brother. Good afternoon. All right. That's what I'm talking about right there. Uh, my name is D.A. Horton. On behalf of my wife, uh, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thank you to Dr. Rakin, all the faculty, staff, and the alumni. Thank you for allowing me and her the grace and the privilege to be with y'all today. Uh, it's really crazy because um, I guess I don't fit the typical profile uh, Southeastern student, uh, but I am in the PhD program, humbled to be in the program, uh, looking forward to continuing my studies uh, at Southeastern. And uh, today I really kind of want to not rehash the why for the kingdom of God and diversity in the mission. I think we all have a biblical framework if we possess a Bible for it and we look at the heart of God, we see that diversity is in his sovereign mindset and it's naturally ingrained into the rhythm of our lives until sin was introduced and then allowed us uh, to be comfortable in breaking off and sectioning ourselves off because of ethnicity, cultural implications, language, various things of that nature. And so what I want to do today is really kind of in my brief time is unpack the how we see the diversity of the kingdom of God and the mission and the implications of the merging of that reality, specifically in a higher academic setting. And uh, the first thing I want to start with is, is by saying this. 
Um, two years ago, I met with a, a large college, uh, Christian college, and uh, they brought me in and they were very candid. And it's the same conversation I've had quite a few times with quite a few Christian higher academic institutions. We need to diversify our student body. We need to diversify our faculty and our staff. How do we do it? And most often the go-to response, almost a knee-jerk reaction is, well, we need to start an urban degree program. And I said, in this setting, um, after I expressed my heart, told him my personal narrative of how I was even introduced to Bible college and seminary, and the, and the president around his cabinet, all his henchmen, if you will, basically said, oh, so what you're saying is start an urban program. And I said, no, I'm saying don't do that. And the whole room, like all the air was vacuumed out. I thought that that's it, I was gonna end up missing on the 10 o'clock news, never to be seen again. I didn't know what was gonna happen. And so he leaned up from his chair and he said, well then what do you propose? I said, sir, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. By all means, that's not what I'm trying to do. But I said, I think it's as simple as ABC. He said, what? I said, simple as ABC. I think you need to build articulation agreements. I think you need to have benevolence funding and you've got to operate at a high level of cultural authenticity. And he said, okay, you got my ear. Tell me what you're thinking. I said, well, it's like this. When I talk about articulation agreements, what I'm really saying is you're fishing from the same prospect pool. If you fish from a pool that's been stocked with bluegill, that's all you're going to catch. So I said, but if you want to expand to catfish or largemouth bass or what have you, you've got to go to a different pool to fish from if that's what's been stocked. And so my daddy fishes, so that's how I know a little something about that right there. And so... I'm like, so you've got to stop going to the same pool and think if you have a different pole, AKA urban degree, you're gonna catch a bluegill if that's all that's in the pool. So I said, what you've got to do is think outside the box. You've got to begin to look at who are churches that you can partner with, who are some of the alumni that are affiliated with your school, who holds the degrees that are necessary to serve as the professor of records, and you begin now to framework some type of an institute through the means of the local church that is outside of your typical demographic reach. And as you build those articulation agreements with such entities, they can go through a discipleship program and through accreditation process now, you can build a 12-hour certificate program that leverages now those individuals that are a part of that healthy local church that you have a relationship with to become students in your classroom or online. And I said, so when you have such an agreement, that's going to allow you to, to dip into new pools with new poles that will allow you to attract the prospects that you're praying that God would send you. The prospects are there. You've been praying, but now it's time to go and get them. And when he heard that, he said, that, that's amazing. How would you propose that is a more practical reality for us? And I said, whoever you want to attract, you need to find quality, credentialed, and qualified candidates to be in front of those individuals, to be a voice of authority that is recognized on a peer level from your current administration and faculty. You do that, that affirms to the ethnic indigenous urbanite population that there is a one-to-one -one ratio with leadership, accountability, and authority within the institutional framework. And that will naturally lend itself to help individuals from the context that I'm from understand the rhythm of life in higher academia. We don't get it, we don't understand it. I didn't think I could ever go to college until I was 22 years old when a lady from the college said, what are you doing with your life? And I said, man, I do gospel rap and I work at a call center. What else is there to do? And she said, are you serious? I said, yeah, what else is there to do? Like, have you ever thought of college? Nah, I ain't got no money for college. Well, what if I could give you a scholarship? 
I didn't have the best grades in high school. But what if I told you that there was a scholarship for individuals who had median grades in, co- in high school? And I said, well, let me see. So through a course of conversations, I ended up enrolling in a college two blocks away from the house that I lived my entire life. Two blocks away from the crack house that I had to pass on my way to school every day. Even though it was two blocks away from me, we were worlds apart from each other. And it took somebody from the inside to meet me where I was and extend a hand to say, I can provide you assistance to provide you a chair in this environment, but you've got to steward it and be responsible to do the work and make sure you maintain academic accountability. But that doesn't happen overnight. You take someone who was raised in a poor, unaccredited public school inner city framework and tell them all of a sudden, you've got to be a good student. Pixie dust does not come from the heavens and make me a good student. It's disciplines, it's stewardship, AKA we call it discipleship. So that's where I said you have to have also benevolence funding prepared. Because also in my context, you have individuals who tried to get into higher academia, maybe at a Vatterrot or a Votex school or a community college, or even a four-year institution, but because they had poor study habits, they did not know how to steward that scholarship, that funding, and they had to leave if they were not kicked out or flunked out. And now they have this gap of five to ten to $15,000 in debt that does not even allow them to get transcripts from their previous institution, will not allow them to get the funding that is necessary. So here you have potentially some of our greatest New Testament exegetes 20 years from now sitting at a call center behind a desk working a nine to five because of this financial gap that is always holding them at bay from access to higher academics, let alone Christian theological academics. So I said, you have to think through the reality of it's not just throwing money at any minority you see. There's got to be a vetting process. You've got to make sure that we understand this is not a handout. This is not a case where we see you as a project, but we are no longer seeing you through the lens of a pigeonhole, but we are seeing you through the panorama of the providence of the potential God has packed inside of your being that you can become. You just need development. You just need individuals to come alongside you, love on you, and show you segues into this world that you've never been allowed to enter. But at the same time, we need you to serve as a gatekeeper to your community for us because we have not been allowed to come into your environment as well. So that's where I said, in addition to benevolence funding and articulation agreements, there has to be a high level of cultural authenticity. And what I mean by that is this, you be you and let me be who I is. That's what I'm saying. You be you, let me be who I is. Because if you let me be who I am, you're going to learn from one individual's narrative what it looks like to live and be born and raised on the other side of the tracks. At the same time, I need to learn how to articulate my words in such a way that I could stand in front of an audience like this and make sense without stammering over three other words every other sentence that's ebonics and you have no idea what I'm talking about. I've got to learn how to contextualize the meat of God's word outside of the urban environment I was raised in. If I really want to be all things to all people, liberal higher academia is another environment that I need to inject a gospel narrative into. But it takes credentials. It takes relationships. It takes bridges being built from my world and the theological world and conservatism that we're in to in order to bridge relationships with the Duke University, a Princeton, or other institutions that want to write us off because we don't employ their method of higher criticism. 
So when you look at that framework and you say, okay, how can we mobilize individuals into such a world? I wouldn't be able to say anything I said in the last eight minutes had individuals such as yourselves loved me in my classroom time with you. If I was not allowed the privilege to rub shoulders and work through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, to work through Kostenberger's work, if I was not allowed to be able to articulate it from my vantage point and now have my peers who, who affirm me as a peer push back and identify all the blind spots that my cultural narrative prohibit me from seeing, I wouldn't be able to walk in different paths that God would want me to walk on, to learn how to communicate the word of God in such a way that it can actually reach people who are not from where I'm from at the same time. By having an ally now be accepted as a member of the Southeastern family allows me to give and others like Deuce allows us the opportunity to say, here is a snapshot of our cultural narrative. Here are some gaps, here are some blind spots. And here's a myriad of assumptions that are made about our people. Now let's work through this process. Because I believe that conflict is actually the litmus test for relationships. It's during situations like Mike Brown. It's during situations uh, that we see from Ezell Ford in Los Angeles and all the cultural crisis moments that the media propagates. It's in those moments that you will have individuals from my world want to write off all of evangelicalism that is a few shades darker than myself, uh, lighter than myself, to say, you weren't for us then, you're not for us now. And all of a sudden, the enemy is woven a dichotomy in the body of Christ yet again. And if we're going to stand against that, it's going to take conversations that are proactive, not reactive. So when the fire of cultural crisis happens, we can stand all the many hues that God has created us to be. And we celebrate the diversity that we have. And it's the unifying power of the gospel and the agency of being people who are living on mission and going to the communities. We're running to communities that everybody is running out of, that we're going there to say, no, no, God is Yahweh. He is active and present amongst his people. And we, as the unified body of Christ, as diverse as we are ethnically, socioeconomically, academically, theologically, as diverse as we are, the common bond that we hold in Christ is the tangible, visible expression that our God has not given up on our nation. That's what he has called us to do. That is kingdom diversity. But that cannot be gained unless we have cultural authenticity. So as I close, I know God is ascending God. You know God is ascending God. All of us fall in line with the reality of understanding that. The celebration of God's diversity and God's kingdom is realized through a process over time. It is my heart, it is my desire, being a member of the Southeastern family, to see kingdom diversity not just be on our campus for the next five to 10 years, but infiltrate our entire alumni association around the globe that we will be able to say our institution has stewarded well the gospel and it is truly put on demonstration by the fact that we are a brochure of heaven. God bless. My name is Gary and I'm a pastor of a local church. I'm Josh Reed and I'm a church planner. My name is Olivia Coffey and I'm a missionary. So the struggles in church planning are numerous, uh, just as the joys and benefits are as well. When I first came to the church, which I pastor, um, and within the first nine months, uh, there was several funerals that went on in the church. Uh, a lot of those were um, people who were unchurched, people I didn't even know. 
and one in particular was a, um, a lady in the community who uh, committed suicide. So as we engage particular neighborhoods in our, in our city, in our area that we really have sensed the Lord calling us to, we're finding various languages, people groups and such. When I was in Niger, I lived with two other girls in a, in a village. We lived in a hut and we were surrounded by nobody else who could speak English. All the, all the people spoke was Fulani, and we would go out and we would share the gospel through um, a radio, and we would show pictures to them, sharing the gospel story. And it was, it was hard. I was called upon to go minister to this family, and uh, it, was a, it was a struggle to how to prepare. What am I gonna say when I get there? These people, they, uh, they're lost, they, they don't know Christ, and they're, they're grieving, and I have to be careful as to what I say. And so some of the challenges have been, um, one, just being able to communicate clearly with them. Number two, doing so in a way that uh, helps bring down the barrier of the leery eye toward uh, the Americans. We did the funeral for the wife, and within six months, her husband, uh, he died as well. In between the time of the death of the wife and the husband, I, I visited the husband on several occasions at his home to, to share the gospel with him. On one particular occasion, he asked me, uh, do people who commit suicide, do they go to heaven? And so uh, I responded that there was a greater question that needed to be answered, and it was how people get to heaven. So I was able to share the gospel with this man uh, that day and several times. Um, he never uh, would um, make a commitment to Christ. Quite frankly, when there's immigration issues and stuff involved, there's a lot of uneasiness about communicating that stuff. but. We're really sensing the Lord just continuing to push us into these things and opening up doors and partnerships with people who are doing this well. But it has been a struggle just to try to do that well um, because we know this is what the Lord's called us to. When I was in Kazakhstan, we went on many prayer walks. And one day in, in particular, we were walking up a hill. And once we got to the top of the hill, we seen that there was a cemetery at the bottom. And so we walked down to the cemetery and we seen that it was a, a Muslim cemetery. And as we even got closer, we started seeing faces on the tombstones. And I could see the city in the background. And I know that these people that we were speaking English to every day are gonna end up in these tombs, just like the faces I'm looking at. They're just gonna be another face on the tomb if nobody goes back to them. Jesus has said, go. And so therefore I go. You don't, you don't question the commander in charge. You do what he says. And then, uh, but that's so, that's the, that's the front door. A passage of scripture that's um, real prominent in my life is, is where uh, uh, God talks to John and he tells him that he's making all things new. Through Christ, his perfect life and death and resurrection, God is renewing his creation. He is uh, redeeming people. He will redeem his creation. And, and one day, uh, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and there'll be no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more heartache. And, you know, I, I still go because of the faithfulness of God. And this is why I'm at Southeastern right now, because I want people to have a chance who have never heard the name of Jesus to know. I don't want them to be another face uh, of Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism and spending eternity away from God. And you see lives being changed and it fuels your desire to go all the more. Uh, people in our church who have been struggling with life dominating sins for years starting to taste the grace of God. marriages that were literally on the brink of destruction starting to be mended by Christ himself you know that's why you go 
God has said He's going to do this, and we can we can go, and we can continue going, and even in the midst of heartache and, and suffering and grieving, uh, we can go because God's faithful, and I, and I look forward to that. That's the promise that God has made, and you know I can give my life to this, even in the midst of heartache and all that comes. Uh, I still go because of that promise. Although the Book of Acts sometimes has the honor of being known as the great missionary manual of the New Testament. The fact is, the Gospel of Matthew is equally deserving of that honor. Because not only does the Gospel of Matthew contain Jesus' great missionary discourse, Matthew 10, or the Great Commission of Matthew 28, the fact is, the theme that Jesus came to be the Savior of all the peoples of the earth permeates the entirety of the Gospel. In the great programmatic statement, Matthew 1, the angel says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Which begs the question, who are his people? We might initially think that they are the Jews of Palestine, maybe even the Jews of the Diaspora. But you don't have to read but the first verse of the gospel to see it and know. His people consist of many, many more. Matthew 1.1, the Lord Jesus is described as the son of Abraham. That is, he is the promised seed of Abraham, the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 12.3, the one through whom all the nations on earth will be blessed. It continues with the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, which names only four mothers in addition to Mary, all of whom are Gentile women, to show God's intention to include the nations in his redemptive plan. It continues with the description of Jesus repeatedly as the Son of Man, the great figure from the night vision of Daniel chapter 7, who will have an eternal kingdom and who will be worshiped by people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. It continues with the Olivet Discourse, which says that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the entire inhabited world as a witness to the nations. And then climaxes with the Great Commission that commands us to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we have only scratched the surface of this great missionary theme. But not only does the Gospel of Matthew teach us that Jesus came to be the Savior of all the peoples of the world, and not only does this prompt His command to carry the Gospel to the ends of the earth, these truths are matched by a very encouraging corollary that Jesus' greatness and majesty draw the nations to believe in Him and to worship Him. We might call it the spiritual law of gravity. You remember Newton's law? He said that the gravitational pull of an object is proportional to its mass, its greatness. The greater the object the greater its attractive force. And because Jesus Christ is the preeminent one, the greatest of all, 
He exerts an attractional force on the peoples of the world that is astonishing. Jesus referred to that himself in Matthew 12. He said, you remember the book of Jonah? The hateful, bloodthirsty Assyrians repented by the thousands at the preaching of Jonah. But behold, one greater than Jonah is here. He says, remember the queen of Sheba? She went from the ends of the earth to seek the wisdom of Solomon. But behold, one greater than Solomon is here. Jesus' point is that since he is greater than Jonah, the compulsion for the nations to repent before him will be greater too. Since Jesus is greater than Solomon, the quest of the nations to pursue his wisdom will be greater too. And so the Gospel of Matthew reveals to us the unprecedented ways in which the nations are being drawn to seek Christ, to worship Christ, and to adore Jesus Christ. We see it in Matthew chapter 2 when the Eastern Magi, priests of Zarathustra, interpreters of dreams and of stars, sorcerer magicians, the very epitome of the spiritual darkness of the pagan world, are summoned to Bethlehem not only to find Christ, but to worship Christ, to present to him their treasures and to defy the order of Herod to protect Jesus Christ at the very risk of their lives. We see the nations being drawn to Christ with the great Roman centurion who Christ said had a faith greater than any he had found in Israel. We see it in the Syrophoenician woman whom Matthew describes as a Canaanite, one of the arch enemies of the people of God, who is driven to approach Christ, worships him, addresses him as Lord, confesses him as the son of David, and petitions him with the very same appeals used by Old Testament saints to address Yahweh himself. And the theme climaxes with the confession of the Roman centurion who stands at the foot of Calvary's cross and sees all the miracles that surround Jesus' death and confesses, surely this man was the Son of God. What Matthew wants us to understand is that because of his great compassion, Jesus is seeking the peoples of the world. But because of his greatness and majesty, the peoples of the world shall also seek him. And so we can preach the gospel not only obediently, not only faithfully, but hopefully and expectantly. Here is my point. The Great Commission to the saints is also accompanied by a great compulsion to the nations that assures us that God will draw the nations of the world to bow before our Savior. And he not only does that with magi 
and Canaanite women and Roman centurions and Ethiopian eunuchs. He does it with the nations in our day as well. Of all the fond memories I have of cross-cultural missions work, none quite compare to a trip almost 30 years ago to Mombasa, Kenya. God was working in amazing ways in Kenya at that time, and there was a greater hunger for the gospel than I had ever seen before. We would walk into villages and people would rush out to meet us and say, please preach to us the word of God. You would place a New Testament in hands in in the Swahili language and they would clutch it to their chest and cover it with tears and with kisses. Typically, we did street evangelism in the morning, worked in a medical clinic in the evenings, and then I preached in crusade meetings at night. One day we had been in the medical clinic and we had treated everything from worms to leprosy to AIDS. People had traveled for miles and miles to get the free medical care. As darkness began to fall, the medical team packed up its stuff and headed back to the coast. And I stayed behind to preach in services that evening. My interpreter escorted a Kenyan man up to me. He was hobbling on one leg. He was completely emaciated. Somehow he had lost one of his legs above the knee and it, the stump of that leg was wrapped in dirty rags and with pieces of string. He had under his arm a forked tree limb that he was using as a makeshift crutch. The translator explained that the man had hobbled 14 miles, leaving his home before sunrise that morning and arriving now just as darkness fell after a long Kenyan day. I immediately recognized that the story was true. The man was wearing nothing but a pair of shorts and you could see the raw flesh, the bloody flesh that had been chafed by that old rough cross as he hobbled mile after mile after mile to come to us. I began to apologize profusely. I said, I am so sorry. You obviously need medical help, but our medical team has gone. I, I don't have the skill to help you. I don't have any medicines to treat you. And as he explained that to the man. While the interpreter spoke, the man held up his hand and stopped him and said no. And then pointing his fingers and pounding my chest like that, he said, I did not come to see them. I came to see you. It is not my body that is sick. It is my soul that is sick. And I have been told, you know someone who can help me. Tell me about Jesus. And when I explained the gospel to him, he repented of his sins and fell on his face and confessed faith in Jesus as his God, Savior, and King. And I've never been the same since. Because I saw a man who stood beside Magi, and Canaanite women and Roman centurions and Ethiopian eunuchs who didn't brush aside the gospel casually, who didn't dismiss it flippantly, 
And who didn't respond with spite? But who treasured the gospel because he was compelled by the greatness and majesty of our Savior to repent and believe. And my point is that we should share the gospel obediently because our commission is great. But we should share the gospel expectantly, hopefully, because our Savior is great. First of all, let me say thank you to both the Summit and uh, Austin Stone for an incredible uh, gift to Southeastern. And I cannot think of um, anything that would fit more perfectly than to have a chair uh, for church planning, uh, both nationally and uh, internationally. And so, uh, Matt, thank you. Uh, you make us proud. And uh, I'm thankful for the partnership that we have with you all. I also want to say thank you to all of those who've shared this afternoon because how they blessed me. And I think they gave you a really good snapshot of what is happening at Southeastern in uh, these recent days. We're just short of 3,400 students, which will be our, we've already passed last year's record enrollment. And so this will be fifth year in a row where God has blessed us with an increasing enrollment. Our fall numbers look great. So I hope that next year, in fact, I strongly suspect next year, I'll be able to share with you another record enrollment. Spirit on the campus has never been sweeter, and uh, it's just a good, good day for Southeastern Seminary. So as I uh, bring our afternoon to a close, my remarks intentionally are going to be brief. You've heard what we're doing, so what are we going to be doing in the future? And I just want to remind uh, our alumni and our friends, here are five core commitments I pledge to you as long as God gives me the joy of doing what I do. Number one, we will remain unapologetically confessional, affirming our four confessions of faith. We're not going to back up one whit on the Baptist faith and message, the abstract of principles, the Chicago statement on inerrancy, and the Danvers statement on biblical manhood and womanhood. In a day where people are afraid to state who they are and what they believe, we're going to continue to do both, and we'll let the chips fall where they may. Secondly, we will continue to have a passion for the Great Commission, which will continue to be the compass that charts our course. Uh, we can do lots of good things, but I become very much aware in my life that the danger to the uh, best is almost always the good. And so though there are many good things we can do, if it doesn't fit under the umbrella of the Great Commission, then we're going to take a pass and we'll let other people do those things. Number three, we're going to continue to train pastors for the churches that we partnership with and who uh, serve you. And we hope to train pastors who are faithful expositors, committed evangelists, capable theologians, and fervent missionaries. I really do believe a faithful pastor has that fourfold calling of being a preacher, an evangelist, a theologian, and a missionary, and as we have heard these last couple of days, if they see that at the top, it cannot help but filter down among the rest of the body of that local church. Number four, we will continue to pursue with all that we are a seminary that looks like the church in heaven. 
that will be front and center on our agenda for our students, but also for our staff and also for our faculty as well. Uh, we shared um, yesterday, we have almost now 14% of our student body that would fall into the category of, of ethnic minorities. And that is a substantial growth over the last four years, almost 50% growth in the last four years. We're heading in the right direction, but uh, we have no illusions that we have arrived at our destination. Our goals are far greater than this. And I really appreciate uh, what DA shared in helping us understand how to strategically get there. And then fifthly, we will work hard, very hard, uh, to put this seminary on a firm financial bedrock that will ensure that a faithful evangelical Baptist seminary will be here offering quality education at the lowest possible cost until Jesus returns in glory. Uh, we cannot assume that that is going to happen through the cooperative program. We cannot assume that the government is always going to be friendly toward uh, religious institutions and churches. And therefore, while we have the opportunity, we need to be diligent in doing something for Southeastern Seminary that will ensure that when we are translated into heaven, uh, the good work that is taking place here is going to continue until Jesus comes again. I tell people truthfully, I get to play for Jesus and they pay me. I do not have a hard job. I do not have a difficult life. I really don't. I have the greatest team in the world, and you've seen that put on display during these days here at uh, the convention. Uh, I really, to be honest with you, am the least of these in that they are so good at what they do. At least I have enough sense to stay out of the way and not mess up what they're doing because in the process, God gets the glory and good things happen. And so I have said many times, people will say to me, you have a really good team and a really good faculty. No, I have a great team and I have the best faculty. And I believe that's why God continues. To allow his hand of blessing to rest on this institution. So thank you so much for being here this afternoon and thank you for loving us, praying for us, helping us financially. One of the neat things that's happened in recent years is more and more of our alumni are helping us financially. I know you can't give a lot, but I've said it many, many times. A lot of people giving a little equals a lot. All you have to do is be faithful with what God has given you and it's amazing what he chooses to do with it.